Hey everybody, I'm Mike Petriello. We're here for the debut episode of the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We're here to talk about all of the amazing things that we've learned from StatCast uh, over the last couple of months. Here with me is Corey Schwartz, Vice President of Stats for MLB Advanced Media. Corey, welcome. Good to be here. Thank you, Mike. How are you doing? I am, I'm excited. I got a bunch of data I, printed out and I'm ready to run. I rock. can see the sheets and I can't <laughs> wait to see what you brought us today. So StatCast, you know, we first saw this last fall, right? And we saw most a couple of sparse videos here and there for video. Uh, or for, for defense mostly. And now this season, we've got data on just about everything. So I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about how we got to this point. Like, how did we go from nothing at all publicly to what we're seeing now, which is almost an avalanche yeah, of numbers? It, it, it's a long story. I'll try and try and sum it up. It really goes back to 2001, the early days of MLB.com. Um, we knew we wanted to implement tracking technology in baseball right away. Uh, it, we had seen it in some other sports a little bit. It had been done a little bit in baseball. But we really wanted to sort of come up with a league-wide system but the challenge is, based on the nature of what we do here at MLB.com, it needed to be real-time so we could use it in our products and, and get it to fans in a way that related to the game. And it needed to be something that we could scale out across all 30 ballparks rather than just a game here and there. And frankly, it took some time for that to happen. Um, MLB.com started in 2001, but our first application of PitchFX wasn't until the 2006 postseason. It really took that long to get it going. And then PitchFX gradually built up, and it's now something that we're used to seeing with every single game. Shortly after that launch, though, in 06, we really started looking for a way to expand that out to include all the plays. But again, we needed to find the right technology. Uh, we needed to find a solution that was detailed, accurate, robust, and could perform in real time, which is a very different challenge for tracking players than it is just for tracking the pitch. The pitch moves in a very finite space in very predictable ways. The players and, the, and fielders and batters and base runners and the ball, all those things move around all over the place. So it took a while to get it up and running. It really hit, um, the really memorable moment for me was in the fall of 2012. Uh, we started working with a company called Chiron Higo, who's now our partner in this endeavor. Um, they, they do a lot of tracking in European League football, which we call soccer here in the States. <laughs> um, they, brought, they did a sample, sort of a, a few test games out in Scottsdale in Arizona Fall League, and they came back and showed us some of their sample data. I remember it was in November of 2012, and those of us in the room just sort of sat back in our chairs, and our jaws went down, and the light bulbs went up all throughout the room over our heads, and we knew that we were really going to be able to do something with this company and with this technology. Uh, so that was when it really started in earnest, and uh, we started to roll out a testing system last year in three venues, and now we're up to 30 ballparks. And uh, that's sort of the long story, hopefully yeah. relatively short. <laughs> well, so the partner you just named, I think that that's not a name that people know too much about. Maybe people more familiar with, with TrackMan, for example. Right. So TrackMan uh, is, is, a is a Danish company. Um, they're, they're actually very active in golf before they got in involved in baseball because the mechanics of the golf swing are very similar to the baseball swing. You're swinging a club at a ball, and the ball has an exit velocity and spin and so forth. So TrackMan really started out in golf and then moved into baseball over the last several years. Chiron Higo, if you've ever watched a broadcast of anything on TV, and there's a little graphic at the bottom of the screen, they commonly call that a Chiron. That's sort of, they are the Kleenex, if you will, uh, or the Coke, you know, the Coca-Cola of what they do, is, which is creating broadcast graphics. And Higo was the company that was building the, the tracking technology. So uh, Chiron acquired Higo, and they became Chiron Higo, and really built out that tracking technology in a way that we can use now in baseball. So it's an endeavor... Um, between those two uh, vendors and BAM, it's their technology, and we ramp it out to the field, and we operate it, and, uh, and, and we're able to capture all that data. So how does this work? I mean, I know people think it's, just, it's radar, right? right? But obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. It's in each of the 30 ballparks this year. You know, how did you go about the process of installing it? How long did it take? Uh, 
again, this, this started last season. We were in three ballparks, and then in the fall, really, we started to ramp it out to all 30. Uh, we started with the club, with the uh, ballparks that were in the uh, postseason last year, and then over the winter, we filled out the rest of the 30 ballparks. And our our multimedia engineering department, that doesn't get a lot of love on podcasts and so forth, they were all around the country. They were in three or four or five ballparks every week throughout January and February and March, installing hardware. Um, but that was really what was the important part of last year, was building the system that could operate in the three ballparks. And then you spend the offseason dealing with all the unique uh, physical characteristics of each ballpark to find out where to hang the radar pads, where to install the cameras, where to run all the cabling that needs to go on, uh, where to put a room for the operators to run the technology. And then ultimately, once you start tracking games, that's when you see the unique um, environmental factors. So some ballparks have a lot of glare from the sun. That'll affect the tracking cameras. Some of them have a lot of shadows. There are different aspects in different ball in each ballpark that you have to sort of burn in, so to speak. Uh, so the first couple of weeks, so that was really what that was about. But now that the system is is uh, fully up and running, we're really starting to see, uh, you know, I mean, no system is perfect, but the data that t comes out of this system is is unbelievable. And it's really been a lot of fun to just to start to scratch the surface of what we might learn. Yeah, so it's been a couple months of data now. And, you know, for me, I know what surprised me is I really thought that uh, the first thing that was going to come to mind was, oh, this defense is great. The defense stats are cool, but it's really been the pitching data that's really been interesting to me, the, the, yeah. the velocity and the rotation. What stood out to you that's been really more than you expected it might be? Well, it's actually has a lot to do with home runs. You know, that's something that all fans appreciate is a really, you know, just a crushed home run that goes into the upper deck, and we see all these measurements that are put out there. But it's been interesting to me looking at the home run data that there seems to be a practical limit for how far a person can hit a ball uh, and how many balls cluster sort of just below that. You know, we always used to think of, you know, a 450-foot home run as being just an utter bomb. And it is, but a lot of guys hit 450-foot home runs. I mean, we've seen a few dozen of those this year. But you don't see a lot of the 330, 340, 350 types that just get over the fence because the way we're measuring it is what we call flat carry. Um, if the ball strikes an object you know, on the way, whether it's the upper deck or a fan's glove in the stands or whatever it may be, that's not the end point to us. We're measuring to where the ball would have gone had it landed at field level. So the distances we're seeing are actually a little bit further in some cases than you might think because we're measuring it back out to ground level, not just where it hit the stands or a glove or whatever. Right. And I think it's been interesting that there are different ways to now evaluate home runs because it used to just be how far did it go, yeah. right? But now it could be if a home run didn't necessarily go that far, but if, say, John Carlos Stanton hit it on a line at a million yeah. miles an hour, that's almost as or more impressive. Yeah, and, you know, there's definitely a sweet spot where of velocity and launch angle, which is, you know, the vertical angle off field level, where a ball is going to be a home run. You know, if you're hitting one 95, 100 miles an hour or more and 20, 30, 35 degrees in that range, that's a home run, you know, almost 100% of the time. But there's an angle where it's too high, where it becomes a high fly ball or a pop-up. And if the angle is too low, no matter how hard you hit it, it's going to be a line, you know, it's going to be a line drive that might go through for a double or a single or it might find a glove. Uh, I was watching a Red Sox game a couple weeks ago and Mookie Betts hit one I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was 110 miles an hour, and he hit it right at the third baseman. So the launch angle was probably just a few degrees above, above field level. And then an inning later, Mike Napoli hit one, the same exact velocity, you know, rounding to the whole number, but at a launch angle of like 35 degrees, and it cleared the green monster. That really shows that, you know, hitting a ball hard is important. Hitting the ball at the right angle is important, but you have to put both of them together to get the home run. And it really is a move away almost from outcome-based analysis. 
right? It's, it's about what Absolutely. did you do, not necessarily did the fielder happen to be standing in the right spot or not. Absolutely. I think, you know, long term, particularly as it relates to fielding, we do want to get away from outcomes. You know, so much of data measurement right now, despite everybody's best attempts, it's not a criticism of anybody, but we only have the result data. We know it was a double or a home run or a line out or the fielder caught the ball or the fielder didn't catch the ball. What we really want to do as the system builds out and as we get more and more data and learn what it means is measure skills and then see how those skills equate to results. So when a guy hits a ball 110 miles an hour on a five degree launch angle, we can say 75% of the time that's a hit. He just got robbed, you know, bad luck or good defensive player, whatever it may be. And I think this will apply really well to fielding as well. Think of, for example, an outfielder making a running attempt at a fly ball and he dives and it just misses it. That goes down as a double in the scorebook or a triple or whatever it may be. But the outfielder may have exhibited tremendous skill just in getting close to the ball. Um, think of an outfielder who chases a fly ball, you know, chases a would-be home run and leaps at the fence and the ball just cleared his glove. We may discover that that was a more exceptional play than an outfielder who makes a catch in certain cases because of the skill that player had to uh, had to exert just to get close to that ball and make the catch. Right, and I really do think the, the big changes it's going to have on defense is starting position. Oh, yeah. So over the winter, I worked with a, a National League outfielder who didn't understand why the defensive <laughs> metrics didn't like him. And he thought he was a good outfielder. Nobody else really did. <laughs> Don't but, name names but, now. <laughs> no, certainly not. Uh, but I explained to him how the advanced stats work, and he you know, hadn't quite understood it. And then he's like, well, it doesn't account for where I start. My, my team shades me over this way, and yeah. the ball goes that way. Uh, and I think that's really going to make a big difference because we've never really had that before. Right. You know, I think starting position is critically important. I think the hang time of batted balls is, is critically important. We were having this conversation uh, with Chris Dial, who's sort of a leader in the, you know, in the analytic community in, in developing fielding stats. And we were talking about range. How do you define range? You know, we're trying to take baseball terminology that we've used since we were kids and create metrics around these things so it'll be understandable. And Chris made a really good point. He said, if every batted ball had unlimited hang time, then every fielder would have, uh, would have unlimited range because eventually you would You're get right. there. So we realized how important hang time is in evaluating um, the performance of outfielders in particular chasing down fly balls. And eventually, just like with home runs, we'll find that sweet spot where if the hang time is this, unless it's hit right at you, you're not getting it. But if the hang time is this, I don't care where you start, you better get it. Right. And, you know, what's cool about it is, is teams are using this. Yes. We already know this. And that's one of the main questions people ask when they first hear about it is like, these numbers are cool, but, you know, so what? What do they mean? And we, can, we know that teams are using this. Famous example right now is Colin McHugh with the Astros. Mm -hmm. Didn't do much with the Mets. Didn't do much with Colorado. Houston went after him, I think, just on a waiver claim because they liked yep. the spin rate on his curveball. And he's been a very big success for them. And I'm sure they're not the only team that is selecting guys based on that. Absolutely. You know, the batted ball data and some of the spin data that TrackMan produces has been available to the clubs for a few years. And those clubs might not be happy about it, but we <laughs> think uh, this, there's tremendous uh, fan-based interest in this data as well. Um, but one of the things that's that's enjoyable for me in my position is that I get to deal with all 30 clubs to some extent or another. And I generally find that if you give the same data set to 30 clubs, they'll all do 30 different things with it. Um, think about catcher framing, which has really become a very prominent uh, analytic topic and sabermetric topic over the last few years. I know for a fact there were clubs looking at this five or six or seven years ago, but they were doing it very quietly and the research wasn't quite in the public domain yet, so no one was really talking about it. Um, there's a club that that we worked with back in 02 and 03 that nobody thinks of as a sabermetric club by any stretch of the imagination. They were the first club to receive um, fielding position data from BAM just that we that were creating from our stringers um, and looking at that and using it to develop spray charts. So 
every club will value the information differently and try and do different things with it. Yeah, I mean, I look at this, there's like 15 different things that haven't done yet that I really want to do. Like it measures catcher pop times, which I think is phenomenal. You know, it measures uh, outfield throwing arm velocity. Like who's got a stronger arm, uh, Cespedes or Puig? Right. It's kind of just anecdotal at the moment, but I mean, that's something we're going to be able to measure and come up with leaderboards and see how it yep. correlates year over year and all this. And those are really, those are really uh, two good terms you use there because we're trying to create metrics, as I said, that, that are understandable. So, for example, when you go sit in the stands at the ballpark, you say that outfielder got a great jump or that shortstop has a great arm. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're trying to quantify things uh, in a way that hasn't been possible before and help people relate to why certain players do better, do certain things better than other players, what does it mean, what is it worth, and how do we compare them. And understand, and, and one thing I'm really excited about is getting away from the notion of, oh, this guy's a great shortstop and this guy's a terrible shortstop. You know, here in New York, both of those things were said about <laughs> Derek Jeter, often in the same sentence. But I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. I think some players do certain things exceptionally well and other things maybe not as well. And Every team is a collection of 25 players, at any given moment at least, and those players have assorted strengths and weaknesses, and the challenge for the front office and the manager is to assemble a team where the, where the strengths and weaknesses of each player complement each other, so you have a strong team. So if you have a shortstop who doesn't have great range, you might accommodate for that with different positioning, or your pitchers might pitch a different way, uh, or you might ask that fielder to do something different than the shortstop would do on a different team. And we're going to be able to quantify that in an entirely different way. I mean, you might be right. able to say next year, Brandon Crawford averaged 15 feet for ground balls, or he got to 20 different balls that required 20, to 20 feet to get to. Uh, that's something we've never really been able to do before. Right. And then once you have the data, you can turn right around and go back to saying the things we've been saying. Um, for example, we say Jose Altuve is a really good hitter because we have batting average to tell us so. Eventually, we'll, or, we, or Giancarlo Stanton has great power because we have his home run totals to tell us. Eventually, we'll have metrics where we can say, this guy's the best in the game at going to his left because we'll be able to quantify that. We won't say, well, you know, his uh, lateral range within this vector is X degrees. We won't talk about that. We'll talk about this guy has great range. Just like right now, we say this guy's got a great slider. We don't talk about the velocity and the spin rate and all those things. We know a good slider when we see it. We'll just have some numbers now to back that up a little bit more. And what I'm really hoping we're going to be able to do is feed this back into pitch classification. Mm -hmm. Because PitchFX has done a very good job for an automated system, but it's not perfect. You know, sometimes it misclassifies right. this and that. But now that we can really see the spin rate, and you can already see that they group into buckets for yeah. different pitches. You know, this... I've been working on the pitch classifications for quite a while, so thank you for saying it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. Um, but you're right. You know, the challenge is that pitches exist along a spectrum. Um, many pitchers, for example, will throw a two-seamer or a sinker, if you prefer, a four-seamer and a cutter. They'll throw a slider. They'll throw a curveball. And these are variations on, a very, on very similar themes. So some pitchers, it's hard to tell apart the slider and the curveball sometimes. Uh, you might call it a slurve, but it might be two separate pitches. Some guys throw a cutter and a slider. Those pitches look similar. Uh, the four-seamer can look like the cutter. And then you have to deal, deal with the problem of what does the pitcher call it? So uh, there's some, I've dealt with some of these things, and I try and research it and call the pitch what the pitcher calls it. There's some guys who throw what looks like from the data you would call a cutter because of the movement. But then you ask the pitcher, he says, no, I've never thrown a cutter in my life. I throw a four-seamer. Okay, we call it a four-seamer. Then another guy insists that his primary pitch is a cutter, but you look at the data, it's a four-seamer. So, right. you know, there's always this sort of balance between what does the data tell you and what does the player want to tell you. There's a little bit of subjectivity in that. Um, but the nice thing about it is when you're measuring a batted ball, the guy can say, I really smoked that. But you know what? If he hit it 98 miles an hour, nah, you know, that's, that's okay. But 
it's not great. So what do you think is next? What's the, what's the next step for us now that we've got all this out there? Oh, wow. Well, you know, from, from a product and a fan-facing standpoint, we really want to start to build an interface for this where people can look at the stats and look at the data. Um, right now, we have everything in game day and at bat, you know, on your iPhone and on your computer where you can see a lot of the batted ball data, particularly on home runs. But we really want to basically build out a stat section with the new data we have. And then we need to keep working. Uh, we're working with two consultants, data scientists uh, from NYU here in New York, uh, who are really helping us build out these measures and metrics Again, we're not trying to throw everything into the kitchen sink and create a magic number and say this is the best player in the land. We're trying to evaluate the different skills in different ways, that, but in ways that people will understand. So our goal is really to start looking into that data, figuring out what is a sufficient sample size where it becomes meaningful, polishing off some of the rough edges, and then presenting it out there so fans can start to settle or maybe start some new arguments. Well, this guy's better to his left, but going to the right is more important. You know that. that our CEO, Bob Bowman, likes to say, we're not going to solve arguments, we're going to create more arguments. And, and I think that'll be a lot of fun because baseball fans like to debate this stuff. It's a pretty exciting time to be watching baseball, isn't it? <laughs> it is. You know, I'm, I am first and foremost a baseball fan, and I, I, I pinch myself once every couple of days and say, this is just so cool. It's amazing. This is just so cool. <laughs> Corey, great stuff. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Mike. We are honored to have here with us uh, today on the phone Zach Day, uh, former Major League pitcher. Zach was a fifth-round pick. Uh, by the Yankees in 1996. He pitched parts of five seasons with the Expos, Rockies, and Nationals. And since 2008, he's been working with TrackMan, mostly in business development and as a pitching coordinator. Zach, how are you doing today? I'm great, Mike. Great. Thanks for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting times now. I know you've been with TrackMan for a while, and you know finally this information can be out in the public sphere, and you can talk a little more freely about what you do with your days. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's been a quiet. It's been quiet. It's I'd say since uh, since '08 and just the introduction and uh, yeah, we teams uh, uh, the information was was is and that still is being held pretty pretty tight, uh, but we're starting to see a glimpse of that, which is fantastic, and I'm excited because uh, we've been talking about some of the numbers for with teams and, and with people for a while now, and, and now I think it's going to be able to be out in the public a little bit more, which is really exciting. So I'd be interested to know how you transitioned from being a pro ball player to getting to TrackMan. I know you said you started there in 2008, and I, I think that was also the last season you pitched in pro ball. So it sounds like the transition transition was pretty quick. It was a week. A week. Um, <laughs> literally a week. Uh, and I don't think uh, I don't think uh, TrackMan knew that I was uh, fully. It had only been a week, but uh, yeah, John John called me up. Uh, I, I'd stopped at a couple of, after a couple of injuries. I'd stopped and. Um, a week after I'd stopped, I'd worked with the work with the Players Trust, and uh, and been involved in there. And uh, John uh, called me up and and asked if I was. They knew that I would stop playing and asked if I would come on board. And uh, really, kind of you can get into this information, and and, and I, it was information that I hadn't used um, during my career, but I was very interested in, and I knew the potential that it had, and and. Uh, but yeah, it was literally all new, all new for me. So I, I was excited and welcomed the opportunity. So, did you have any kind of background in technology, or, or maybe even I should ask, had you ever had an office job before working at TrackMan? Uh, no, I hadn't. <laughs> so no, my my uh, uh, baseball was it was a career career baseball. Uh, I had uh, you know, signed out of high school, so um, you know when when uh, when John approached me, no, I had, I had no experience in a technology background. Um, but you know, technology background, regardless, was, I think it's more of a from from my standpoint is is how well I could how well you can visualize and see 
um, see the numbers and put them to life and kind of visually uh, make the numbers, um, you know, I guess, bring bring something out of the numbers. And, and uh, um, that's what I, uh, you know, hopefully grasped and I was able to take on. Um, yeah, I sense, I sense after, you know, while I was, while I was working at TrackMan and then I finished up my, my bachelor's degree in business. But, uh, um, but yeah, that was, it, it definitely is, was an initial, it, as is for most, an initial shock as far as getting into the, to the real world after baseball. But uh, I was looking forward to it. So uh, tell us a little bit more about the kind of the day-to-day of the company, about John, who you mentioned, um, about how you worked with him and, you know, what's your, what's your primary role is there on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so John, John's a GM of TrackMan. John brought me on board, like, like, mentioned in 2008 and uh yeah initially we'd go around the teams and and um show them show them the technology show them what we could do and and you know just trying to get buy-in and that was my initial role was as a uh kind of to bridge the gap because we'd set up on field um we'd set up uh bullpens and just sit up sit up and just talk about the data and and the learning curve involved and and just trying to understand the data uh, what the potential could be, and and really um, just just also work with uh, yeah, John and uh, it was John and my myself, and then we had uh, somebody come on board that that would uh, you know help kind of also interpret the data. So uh, so we kind of throw thoughts around and, and and start to see the data come to life in different areas and the values that it could have. But uh, yeah, it was. It was an exciting first uh, few years to trying to get it. <laughs> it was trying to just to get just get people to believe, just get teams to believe that this data was uh, is valuable and had a big value, a big potential. Well, so. that's an interesting question because I think you know with the advent of uh, or the increase in advanced stats usage over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of players have been very famously against kind of the the new wave of stats. And how have you found the reception from active players? And you started talking to them about spin rate and batted ball velocity and all all the stuff you're measuring here. We don't, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very good question. So I, I, I've talked to, it's a wide, it's also a, um, a very wide, wide range of, um, from, I'd never heard of it to, um, I'm very interested in it and I I can't get enough of it. So there, there's definitely, uh, definitely a range and obviously there's, there's the in between, but, um, and the same goes with the same goes with the coaching staff. Um, it's it's uh, old school, new school uh, battle, the clash uh, of you know I I can see these things with my eyes, uh, or I know that you know I can see this, I can see what's going on on the field. I don't I don't need this technology compared to uh, you know give me data. Um, you know I, I can't necessarily see everything, and also I want to have record of of um, this data over a longer period of time to be able to make decisions and, uh, and, and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, it was a, uh, it still is, it still is kind of a, a clash between between the two. Sure. Well, I can't imagine how much you've learned, uh, you know, about the art of pitching and, and measurement working at TrackMan. So let's say tomorrow you were back on a major league mound knowing what you know now. How would you approach your game differently? So That's a great question. You know, I was a sinker ball guy, you know, big sinker, big ground ball, ground ball, fly ball ratio, huge. Fly. And I, I didn't have my track man data, um, didn't have data, uh, spin rate, spin rate data. I didn't have the tilt, which is uh, direction of the ball, spinning, release height, all that information that goes into, you know, uh, ground ball, fly ball ratio. Um, but if I were to look at it again, I would, um, I would definitely 
understand my strengths, which is what, which is what you know, ground ball, and my certain numbers or data of why uh, why those got me there. And then I would take those strengths and I would work um, uh, create a file. Basically, I would take the sinker and I would create a pitch off of that. My strengths. I, I can better know my strengths, which I knew it was a sinker, but I could say, all right, going based off of my sinker, my data on my sinker. Uh, I need to learn this, uh, which probably would have been, I need to learn the ball. I need to learn how to throw the ball straighter. <laughs> so, you know, based off of that information, I need to, I, yeah, I can make the ball sink and I can make the ball move. But, but uh, you know, my weakness was keeping it straight. Well, I think what we've learned, so, you know, sticking with fastballs for a moment, it's good to have uh, a low spin rate or it's good to have a high spin rate, right? Because you get grounders or you get strikeouts. It's not great to kind of be in the middle. So yeah. do you think that, is it, is that, a born skill or is it a taught skill? Like if you had a minor leader come to you and say, this isn't working for me, I need to change my spin rate. Is that something you think, okay, this can be taught? You know, it's, it's a great question. Can it be taught? I, I believe you can teach. I, I believe the question is, is more of, can you teach it without changing too much? Um, I think that that's the better, the bigger question. I, I would say, I think we can, <laughs> Uh, we've had a very, you know, I, I've, I haven't worked with it for a little while. I've seen and utilized it in ways that I believe. Um, but with that being said, without scientific proof that this is, you know, this definitely you can increase it by doing X, Y, or Z. Um, it's, it's still, you know, it's still just a, uh, a theory. Well, a theory we've had here internally that we haven't, we haven't found a good example of a game yet, but we want to is whether uh, this changes as a game goes on, like whether fatigue plays a role. Like, for example, could we find an, a guy who was blown through seven innings and then get lit up in the eighth? Could we have seen that his spin rate was starting to, you know, lose or increase depending on the guy, you know, in the pitches leading up to that? So did you ever, I know you didn't have the actual data when you were pitching, but did you ever feel that that was something that would change with you as you got more tired? Yeah, but there's two There's two things I think is going to, and I told this, and when I talk in the teams, I think this is a very big uh, I think it's a huge um, thing as far as being able to tell when a pitcher's done. Um, TrackMan can provide that data over a long period of time. You can uh, pitch counts. You know, pitch counts are a big thing, right? So if you can tell whether it's spin rate, whether it's release height, whether it's um, these certain data points, they're decreasing after the seventh inning every t- or after a certain amount of pitches every time. Uh, pitch counts isn't is going to be a little bit more. You're not going to you're going to take the guesswork out. So I think that that's going to be um, looked at even closer. Some guys might have 80 pitches. Some guys might have 120 pitches in the tank before they see a decrease in whether it's spin, release height, certain certain data points. Um, so it, hopefully that'll affect not only performance but also um, the potential for injury as well. So one thing I, you know, it's always been a little fascinating is how different pitchers perform in different environments. Uh, and you pitched briefly for the Rockies. You only got into a couple of games at Coors Field, but yeah. And, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, they they picked you up because you were a sinker baller. Uh, have you noticed that spin rate is different at altitude or in other environments? Yeah, that has been definitely. Uh, I believe that has been proven that's been and I'll have to go back and find out what the percentage is. But yes, yeah, spin rate is affected. 
Um, there's there's uh, no question as far as different altitude goes, spin rate will be will be affected a certain percentage, and and, and it will be at Coors Field. And why certain pitches are harder to throw there um, than others? Um, so yeah, it, it is it is. We will you will see more detailed information as far as regarding Coors Field and the data and spin and break and and those kind of parameters. But uh, altitude does play a role as long as as well as a couple other factors. But right. Well, yeah, altitude does. So. Yeah, we're, we're we're trying not to draw too many conclusions based on the the two months of data we have here, but yeah. uh, that's definitely something that's kind of top of the list, especially as the Rockies are just desperate to find pitching, you know, anywhere they can. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a matter of it, I, I go about it. Uh, yeah, it. There's a couple things that I think about, and well, one was actually just came up the other day was the other the other thing is when you move a starter to the bullpen, does he increase? Does the spin rate increase? Does, obviously, is velo. You know, sometimes the velo jumps up, but does the spin rate increase as well? So, That's a great question. is there a jump? Yeah, is there a jump from a starter going to reliever? Does that play a role in the success? If you see that, so there's a lot. There's some great stuff that uh, you know, question-wise, that we hope to to dive into, and and I think the the altitude will also play a role um, as well. And uh, yeah, just just like you said, two months worth of data, but uh, you'll start to see some things. Uh, some things uh, start to come together. Zach, last question for you. Uh, you know, of all yeah. the different measurements that TrackMan has, which is the one that it, you personally feel is the most interesting for the common fan to be able to latch onto? Um, I, I think right now to start, it's uh, um, for pitching. It's spin, um, just because it's the value of spin is. Um, it's an unknown. It's so it's important. Spin makes the ball break. Uh, spin will uh, will show some um, strengths and some weaknesses with certain pitchers that we haven't been able to see before. It'll be grouped in, I think, with uh, velocity. I think you'll see, you'll find it. Uh, people will talk about it as just as I, I found myself talking about it as much as velocity. I'd rather. You know, when you get, and I don't know what the number is, but when you get to over a certain, a velo over a certain, you know, 97, you're, you're going to get guys out because of velocity. Uh, if you're pitching in the average, you're 92, um, it's it's a little bit different, right? Your spin is going to play a bigger role than, than somebody throwing probably 97, 98. So you're going to be talking in terms of spin. I think that it, it, it's a fairly easy of all the numbers that we that we give, it's a fairly easy number to grasp on. And uh, what will be interesting is when we get into not only spin, um, there's no wasted spin in a fast in a fastball or changeup, but there is wasted spin on a breaking ball. So, well, that's just a little glimpse of what what we have to look forward to well, on, think, on the spin. I think you're absolutely right because spin rate is definitely the what's kind of jumped out the most to us as we're trying to write and analyze this. Zach, uh, great stuff here. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Do it again. Zach Zach Day, a former big league pitcher, business development with Trackman. I am Mike Petriello. Thanks to listening to the inaugural MLB.com StackCast podcast. See you next time.